I grew up by miles of redwood trees, tall, strong, and beautiful. And I learned a couple of things, that redwoods are the tallest trees in the world. They are some of the strongest, most resilient, storms and fires cannot take them. And they are Latin for the term forever living. But their roots don't even run that deep. They are only that strong and they only live that long because their roots intertwine with the other surrounding redwood trees. Alone, a redwood won't grow as tall and can sometimes be blown over by the weather. But in a forest of redwoods, underneath the soil surface, there's millions of roots connected for they are better together. And when I think of these redwoods, I think of us here. I think of how often we try to go through life by ourselves. The times we've been hurt, the times we've been left, the times we've been damaged by somebody else. And so we decide that we are just fine all alone. But God says, that's not what I created you for. Jesus was passionate about people and community and believed the church was the hope of the world. He called it a family because here we find our identity. He calls it a temple because we're like pieces that come together to build and hold up one another. He calls it a flock of sheep because we are cared for by the same shepherd. And he calls it a body because we're all different parts and no purpose or function is like the other. He calls it his bride because the church is the love of his life and he calls it a vine or a garden because we're only productive when we're connected he says the lost have hope through it he says the hurt are healed through it he says we must love and forgive and fight to protect it because the community of the church is his absolute favorite Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Much like a redwood forest, we need each other to survive. We need to hold on to one another, intertwine, to stand firm against the trials of this life. The gates of hell will not have the victory when we are the church God wants us to be. So let's be redwoods. Alone they can't do much, but together they are miraculous. Together they are brilliant. Together they hold each other up so no storms, no hell can take them. The church, the bride, the body, the temple, the flock, the family, the garden, the forest of redwoods, whatever you want to call it. God says we are better together. So no matter the weather, fight for it. We were made to grow here. We were made to stand tall here. We were made to be a part of this forest here with each other, representing the creation of God, standing strong against all odds and going through this life together. I could do that too. Not a problem. That's good stuff. Well, my name's Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I've uh, been here 17 years, believe it or not, and uh, yeah, some of you are thinking he made it that long. Uh, one of my responsibilities is to work with all of our small groups uh, at all our different campuses, with Pastor Matt in Apple Valley, and Jason out in Asperia, and Brian and Phelan here in Victorville, helping create environments for you to dive into small groups, to study God's word, uh, and to grow together. If you need a copy of the notes, would you raise your hand? We'll get those to you. Or if you need a Bible, we've got uh, some free Bibles for you as well. 
We're finishing our series on not-so-famous dead people, and the whole idea behind this series was never to confuse fame with impact. That you don't have to be famous to make an impact in this world, that you and I probably will never be famous, but we've been given 8 to 15 people to make an impact in, and we've been looking at not-so-famous dead people in the Bible, and uh, we've been called to make an impact in this world. We're going to be looking at a man named Jethro in the book of Exodus chapter 18. You can open your Bibles there if you like. And we're going to be looking at him. And he had a really famous family member, which he told seven words to. And these seven words were life-changing. In fact, these seven words, if you listen to them, will radically change the trajectory of your life. These seven words, if they're spoken in the wrong context in your life, actually could destroy your life. Some of you have been destroyed by these seven words. These seven words, the Bible says, separates the wise from the foolish. These seven words separate those who are successful in their endeavors and those who fail. These seven words can save you from heartache and pain. These seven words are life-giving. They will stop you from wearing yourself out. But if I'm honest with you, uh, none of us in this room want to hear these seven words. I don't want to hear these seven words. You don't want to hear these seven words. You don't want your spouse to tell you these seven words. You don't want your boss to tell you these seven words, your kids to tell you these seven words, your parents to tell you these seven words. But if we listen to these seven words, they radically can change our business, our marriages, our finances, our parenting. These seven words are powerful. But before I tell you these seven words, I want to tell you about Jethro. Jethro's famous brother and son-in-law was Moses. Now, this is the Moses you're thinking of, but let me give you some context. Moses was a Jew, and he was born into slavery. He was born into Egypt, and he was adopted by Pharaoh's family. So he became the prince of Egypt as a Jew. And one day, he kills an Egyptian, and for fear of his life, he runs into the wilderness where he meets a woman named Zipporah, whose father is Jethro who's a Midianite. Now, the Bible tells us that Jethro was a Midianite priest. I want to show you a map so you get an idea what we're talking about. Uh, here is the area of Midian that we, we think we don't know much about the Midianites, uh, kind of on both sides of the Gulf of Aqaba here. Mount Sinai's kind of right there in the Sinai Peninsula. And you've got up here in Goshen is where uh, the Egyptians had enslaved Israel. So when Moses left, he ran for about 250 to 300 miles into this area. We don't exactly know where, but somewhere in Midian lands in the wilderness there, and he meets Zipporah, marries her, and Jethro, his father-in-law, is a Midianite priest. Now, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham, so the Israelites and the Midianites all had common ancestry, but at some point, the Midianites walked away from worshiping the God of Abraham and began to worship many gods. So Jethro, being a priest of the Midianites, probably made sacrifices and offerings to many gods. And so Moses begins to work for his father-in-law for 40 years as a shepherd. Now, working for a family business can be tough, right? But working for your in-laws? It's a whole nother Oprah. Now, I married into a great family. I'm blessed by my in-laws. I love my family. I love my in-laws. I think they love me most of the time. But some of you have crazy in-law stories. Am I right? Let's be honest, some of you are the crazy in-laws. And you need to recognize that, right? Your kids go home and they say, what's the definition of mixed feelings? It's when your Maserati goes off a cliff with your in-laws in it. 
you just don't know how to deal with that, right? You're just, it's a mixed feeling. Some of you have that kind of relationship. But I don't think, I don't think Moses and Jethro had that relationship. He worked for his father-in-law for 40 years as a shepherd, ends up seeing the burning bush in that time, goes back to Egypt, rescues the people of Israel, the Exodus, you know that story comes out. Three months since Moses first left the wilderness, confronted Pharaoh, we now are in the story of Exodus 18. So three months ago, Moses left, Moses went through the Exodus, and he's now leading two million Israelites And he's in the wilderness, and his father-in-law comes to him in Exodus 18. So open up your Bible to Exodus 18. We're going to start in verse 13. Let me read this. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as a judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning until evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? Why all these people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses answered him, Because the people come to me and seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourself out. This work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Now Moses is doing what you and I would do. When you're in a position of leadership, you begin to bear the weight of leadership, and you begin to do what you think you ought to be doing. i got to care for these people. I got a lead. They have problems. They come to me. I'm, I'm, I'm the top position. Some of you are in that position now. You, are, you own your own company. Uh, you're the CEO of a company. You're at the top position of your site. Maybe you are the primary breadwinner, maybe the only breadwinner of your family, and you feel the burdens of being responsible for that. And isn't it true that if you're in leadership, so many people have so many opinions about every decision you make? And it's stressful. And it's why these seven words were so important for Moses. Because Moses was there, listening from day until evening, all of the problems of Israel. And he just took that heart as a shepherd. As he shepherded the sheep, the flock, he transferred that to the people of God and he cared for them. But these seven words are powerful. Look at verse 17. This is what Jethro said. He said, what you are doing is not good. And these are the seven words you need to write down. These seven words are life changing if you listen to them. What you are doing is not good. See, no one wants to hear those words, right? You didn't come to church this morning to hear that. But I'll be honest with you, whatever level of leadership you have in your home, in your place of work, in the community here, you need two to three people around you that will tell you these words. What you are doing is not good. Isn't it true that great friendships are honest friendships? Having people around your life that will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. There are plenty of people who will tell you what you want to hear. But what you need in your life are some people who will come alongside you and say, I love you, but what you are doing is not good. Look at this passage in in the Bible in 1 John. I know it says 1 Peter, but it's 1 John. It says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. See, we are fearful of being completely honest with friendships in our life. We're fearful that they're going to hurt their feelings. We're going to lose their friendship, perhaps. And none of us have perfect love. But this idea of love in this passage is this idea, kind of love you would have for a family member. It's a tender affection. Do you have that love that says, I will love you enough, and when they know 
that you love them in that way, it drives out fear from their life. In fact, isn't it true when you know that somebody loves you, I mean truly loves you, that even if they say something that hurts, you'll listen to it? Because you know you, they love you. You know that they're in your corner. You know that they want the best for your life. And I'm glad Jethro loved his son-in-law, the leader of a nation now, had just destroyed Egypt. And he loved him to said, son, what you're doing is not good. But here's what's great about how Jethro did that. Jethro didn't just criticize his son-in-law. He said, what you're doing is not good, but I want to give you some advice. So let's look at that advice as we continue reading the story. Verse 19. Jethro says, listen now to me and I'm going to give you some advice and may God be with you. He's sort of like, you know, hey, I'm going to give you some advice. It's going to be tough, but just check it out with God. May God be with you. Hang in there. You must be the people's representatives before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way they are to live and how they're to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. Have them bring every difficult case to you, but the simple ones, they can decide themselves. This will make your load lighter, because they'll share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. And so Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. I love how Jethro approaches Moses. Jethro could have approached Moses and said, listen, son, I am your father-in-law. I am the elder statesman here. Listen to me. He could have said, hey, you were once my employee. You know, you would never be where you're at unless you first worked for me and learned what it was like to shepherd the sheep. You need to listen to me and and I deserve the respect. No, Jethro came alongside his son-in-law and said, I'm going to give you some, you know, what you're doing is not good. I'm going to give you some advice, but check it out with God. And then just gave some ideas. He didn't just criticize it, but said, here's some ideas you ought to do. And I love that Moses listened to his father-in-law. There's a wise man named Solomon. He was a king of Israel many years later. And he wrote a bunch of pithy statements. And they were all comprised in the book of Proverbs. If you ever want to read just some one-liners, go to the book of Proverbs. And I want to read a couple to you now. This one in Proverbs 19 says, Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end, you'll be counted among the what? Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end, you'll be counted among the wise. Do you want to be wise? Then you have to listen to advice, accept discipline. Or look at Proverbs chapter 12. The way of a fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. See, some of you just keep going down the track you're going to. And when someone gives you advice, you don't listen to them. Now listen, Jethro's advice did four things for Moses. And I want to just lay these out really quick. The first one is this. It made life easier for Moses. Jethro said, if you do this, your load's going to be lighter. So it made life easier for Moses by listening to this advice. Number two, it clarified Moses' responsibility. Moses thought, I'm the leader of the nation of Israel. I've got I've to sit there and listen to all their disputes. And Jethro said, no, your job at the top of the org chart is to teach them and show them how to live God's way. It clarified what Moses' job was. Number three, it allowed Moses margin. The Bible says he was there from morning until evening listening to problems. You know how tiring that is? Finally, Moses, by clarifying his responsibility, understood there's margin in my life now. And lastly, it allowed others to fulfill their, their purpose said, select some capable men, here's some qualifications, let them be responsible for things. 
I'll be honest, some of you came to church just to hear these four points because you are in a position of leadership at your work and you're bearing the burden and it's destroying your health, it's destroying your life, your marriage, your kids because you're doing it all because you simply won't delegate. You won't trust others who are below you on the org chart. You won't hire more people to help make your load lighter. And I'm glad Jethro had the courage to tell Moses, what you're doing is not good, but not just criticize him, not just give him a, a challenge, but also give him some help that was going to make his life easier and clarify itself. In fact, I'll be honest with you, that's why we do small groups at High Desert Church. It'd be very easy for all the pastors just to teach Bible study after Bible study, and you would come, you would love it, it'd be great. But we recognize if that was the case, we'd be here morning until evening, caring for you, counseling you, praying for you, teaching you. And we would have no margin in our life. And we know that many of you have been given gifts and abilities to lead groups. In fact, I want to share with you some numbers. I think they're exciting to me. We have over 215 adult groups with all our campuses around the valley. Over 450 leaders and co-leaders leading those groups. 2,300 of you are in a small group. We have over 65 groups for kids and 65 leaders that pour into those kids. And over 325 kids in small groups at all our campuses. We have over 20 junior high small groups. Over 38 leaders that serve those junior hires. I mean, these are really the saints of our church, the ones that work with our 7th and 8th graders, our junior high students. We have over 250 junior hires in groups, over 40 high school small groups all over the valley, over 75 leaders that work with our high schoolers, over 415 high schoolers in a small group. When you put that all together, that's 3,300 of you, from kids to adults, in some form of a meaningful relationship where they can study God's word, be challenged, have relationships where someone can say what you're doing is not good. I love creating environments. I love in creating groups where you can dive in to meaningful relationships. But I'll be honest, some of you don't want to be in small groups. Some of you love coming to church, sitting in the back, and you just kind of want to come in and get out. I don't want anybody to know who I am. I don't want anybody to know all my junk. I don't want anybody to know all the struggles I have, all the doubts I have, because I just, I don't want to be found out, right? Some of you are that way. Some of you are living a life and you're kind of playing both sides of the aisle. I mean, you're kind of one foot in, in the church, one foot with God and one foot in the world and you're just doing what you want to be doing, right? Some of you are dating right now. And even though your parents and your friends and your family, your pastors are saying, hey, you should reconsider some stuff, maybe slow down or... Is this the right person? You just, you're focused in. You don't want to listen to their advice. Some of you are raising kids and your kids are kind of getting a little squirrely and you're overwhelmed and someone says, you know, you ought to look at this book or here's a new strategy. And you know what you do? Don't tell me how to parent my kids. You won't listen to advice. Honestly, some of you are sleeping around. There's just sexual immorality in your life and you just don't care. I'm telling you what you're doing is not good. The way of a fool seems right to them. And you're being foolish and you're heading toward destruction, but you won't listen to advice. Some of you are spending money so irresponsibly, there's burden and stress on you. But when someone gives you an idea, you get defensive. Don't tell me how to spend my money. This is private. Some of you have been so hurt by somebody when a family member or a friend says, you know what? You need to build a bridge. You need to let the past be the past. You need to forgive them. You know what you do? You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said to me. You have no right to tell me I can forgive them. No, the Bible says you forgive them and you need to. Some of you are so dead set on divorce right now. 
that you won't listen to advice anymore. Some of you are wearing yourself out as a boss because you're trying to take it all because you're afraid if you let things go, you're gonna lose control, you're gonna lose power. But what you're doing is not good and you are wearing yourself out. And I believe those words, what you're doing is not good, are best said in the context of relationships, meaningful relationships. And I think Jethro and Moses had those relationships. They worked for 40 years together as shepherds. And I can guarantee you, working in the family business, there were fights. Jethro and Moses fought over where to feed the sheep and how to share the sheep and what price to sell the sheep for. There were probably debates there were probably fights where, where Moses was saying, hey, Jethro, back away. This is, I know she's your daughter, but this is my wife. This is my family. I'm going to lead our family differently, Jethro, so back away. I'm sure there were tensions like that over 40 years. There were times of crying and laughing and rejoicing. But there was a relationship built that Jethro could say these words to Moses. And Moses could hear him because he knows Jethro loves me. He's with me. So I want to give you three ideas, three ideas to help you build meaningful relationships. Here's the first one. Be excited about what God is doing in the lives of others. Be excited about what God is doing in the lives of others. Now, here's what's amazing in the passage. We started in verse 13, but we're going to go back to Exodus 18, verse 10, because the first thing when Moses came out of Exodus with the Israelites and Jethro met them in Midian, Jethro didn't do, the first thing he said wasn't what you're doing is not good. The first thing that Jethro did was rejoice and celebrate with Moses what God had done in the lives of the Israelites. Look at this in verse 10, chapter 18. It says this, Praise be to the God. This is Jethro speaking. He says, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued you from the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. See, the first thing Jethro did was celebrate with Moses what God was doing in Moses' life. And we already know Jethro was a Midianite priest, maybe worshiping other gods. And so here we see it. It says, now I know the Lord is greater than all other gods. Maybe this was a profession of faith. Maybe Jethro at this very moment realized Oh wait, there is one God. He's the God of Abraham, the God of my ancestor. Here is the moment that Jethro put his faith in the Lord. Or perhaps this was, the, this was a rededication. Maybe God had supernaturally and strategically placed Moses in Jethro's life for 40 years planting seeds. And at some point, Jethro had believed in the God of Abraham. And this was that moment when he said, oh, now I know, I know, I know. Oh yes, now I'm reaffirmed that this God is the true God. We don't know. But all we do know is that Jethro celebrated, was excited about what God was doing in Moses' life. And isn't that a sign of a great friendship? When they can celebrate with you? Don't you want people in your life that don't suck your life, but they give life to you? They celebrate with you when, when things are going well? Right? Are you that kind of friend that comes around people and you rejoice with them? Right? When they get pregnant and you can't and you've been struggling and they hear the good news, do you rejoice with them even though in your heart it hurts? Are you that friend when they get a raise, they get a promotion and you get looked over, can you rejoice with them and be excited about what God is doing in their life? Are you a friend who when they get good news about health and you don't, can you rejoice with them? Or when their kids get the leading part in the play or the starting position on the team and your kid doesn't, are you able to rejoice with them? Or let's be honest, when you're single and your friend gets out on a date, 
and you're home alone again, can you rejoice with them? Right? A great friend is one who rejoices with them. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says this, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Are you that kind of person that you're devoted to those people in your life, in your small group, in your relational world? Are you devoted to them in love? Now that word in love has the idea of a a familial love, a tender affection. The way you would love somebody in your family. Do you love those people in that way? That you honor them, that you rejoice with them. A couple verses later in chapter 12 says this, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Is that you? Are you a friend who rejoices with them and then when they go through difficulty, do you mourn with them? So be excited. The next thing you need to do is this. Be committed no matter what. If you're going to be a great friend, if you're going to build meaningful relationships, you've got to be committed no matter what. It takes time to build meaningful relationships, right? It takes conflict at times to build those relationships. It takes difficulty to build those relationships. It took 40 years for Jethro and Moses to build the depth of relationship they had. Now, my wife and I have been married 12 years. And uh, here's what is sweet. We have had many, and I mean many, what you're doing is not good conversations. Right? Now, mostly it's her telling me these things. Not so much me telling her those things, because she's pretty amazing. But we have had a lot of those conversations And we've been through the three-year itch and the seven-year itch and the 10-year itch. And I'm sure there's other itches coming down the road I don't even know about. But we have been through them. But here's what I know. I know my wife is for me no matter what. She knows the deep, dark sins in my life, the wicked thoughts, the wicked motives, the wicked desires I have that none of you will ever know, by the way. She knows them. And she loves me even in the midst of them. And I know that she is for me no matter what, which means when she comes around and says, honey, what you're doing isn't good, I know I have no fear because of her love. And I know that she knows that I am with her and for her no matter what. I know, you know, you all think she's kind and loving, but I know the other side of her. (laughs) And she is still kind and loving, even in her bad days. But I know her. And I love her no matter what. Galatians 6.2 says this. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. That's a sign of a great relationship. Of a meaningful relationship. And I'll be honest with you. This is where our small groups succeed. See you've heard it said. People don't care how much you know. Until they know how much you what? Care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the way people know how much you care is when you carry their burdens with them. When you burden life with them. And our small groups do this well. I could tell you stories of small groups bearing the burdens financially with each other helping pay bills or buying groceries. Or I know of groups who've said, hey, we've got an extra room in our house. Stay with us until you can get back on your feet. I know of groups that prepare meals for each other. When someone's sick in their family, they come around and said, let us, let us provide meals or, or, or you're having a brand new baby. Let us set up meals 
for you for those first two weeks when you're out of the hospital and we'll, we'll bear that with you because you're overwhelmed as a new baby or when someone dies in a family, you know, our church family has been pretty beat up in the last couple of weeks. This weekend, we had three funerals alone and this next week, we have two more. And it's our small groups that come around those families and they bear the burdens and they say, we will pray with you. We will provide meals for you. We will sit in silence because there are no words we can even say. And we will bear this difficult time with you. This is where our small groups fulfill the law of Christ every single week. Lastly, the last thing you need to do to be a great friend, to build a meaningful relationship is take a risk. Take a risk. Jethro took a huge risk in telling Moses this. Moses is the leader of a nation. Jethro could have had his father-in-law killed for confronting him. Jethro risked never seeing his daughter Zipporah again. We're never going back to the in-laws again, honey. Risked losing the grandchildren. He took a risk, but he loved Moses enough to say, son, what you're doing is not good. And some of you need to take a risk. Honestly, you've been part of a small group, but you need to take a risk. You need to be the first this year to share your struggles and let the facade down that, you know, you've got it together, that your finances are okay, or that your marriage is okay, or that your health is okay. And you need to be the first. It's it's a risky thing to open up and to take the veil down. Or some of you need to be the first to confess some sins. I'm not saying get on Facebook and, you know, let the world know. I'm saying grab two or three people and say, hey, you know what? I have been struggling with this. Would you, would you hold me accountable? And it's risky. I mean, you're taking a risk that they might reject you. They might look at you differently. But I'd rather you take a risk and say, I've been struggling with this. And would you hold me accountable? And you'd be surprised that they're all going to say, oh yeah. In fact, let me share with you my struggles as well. Some of you need to be, take a risk and watch this. You need to take your cell phone and put it down when you're in a conversation. No, I know that's like, Crazy for some of you, but you need to engage in that person in front of you with your kids, with your spouse. Trust me, whoever's texting you can wait. And you need to be a, take a risk and put that phone away. Somebody need to take a risk and forgive somebody. Write that note. Make a phone call and say, you know what? You hurt me. You don't even think what you did was wrong, but I've been harboring bitterness. But I want you to know I love you and I forgive you. And that's a risk. Some of you honestly need to take a risk and sign up for a small group. You are freaking out that I would ask you to join a small group. You don't want to get to know people. You don't want them to know your junk, your baggage, your issues. And you've been avoiding it. It's, well, my schedule doesn't allow it. Financially, we can't pull it off right now. You know, the kids got so many things going on. You can take a risk. Find a way to make it happen. Because in those relationships is where you are going to grow spiritually. And this weekend at every campus, you can sign up for a small group. When you're, done, you can, when you're done today, you can go outside and sign up for a small group. But honestly, some of you in here need to take a risk when it comes to what you believe. Because honestly, your belief system is all jacked up. You come to church every weekend thinking, well, I'm at church. God must love me now. Somehow, uh, because I'm here, you know, God and I are good. Some of you in your belief system, you, you kind of believe in God. But if we were to really sit down with you and kind of prod a little bit, your belief in God really is kind of shaky. You don't have a meaningful relationship with him. You just have kind of a, an idea 
of this God who exists, of a God who might love you. Maybe you actually think God doesn't love you. I mean, he loves the pastors, sure, and he certainly loved Moses and Jethro, but not really me because of all the things I've done. But we see the gospel in Jethro and Moses because just like Jethro tells Moses what you're doing is not good, God is the same way because he tells us all the time what you're doing is not good. It's called conviction, right? All of us in this room, myself included, know we don't make the mark that God has. And, and God took a risk. He took a risk when he came from heaven to earth and he poured himself out on the cross. Took a risk of humiliation and of shame and rejection. But God knew that the reward of dying on the cross for you and me far outweighed the risk. Far outweighed the risk. And here is what is so sweet about Jesus. Is Jesus doesn't just say, what you're doing is not good but he actually provides the answer in himself. He says, what you're doing is not good, but I will pour myself out for you. And not just that, but when you come into my family, there's a whole new level of, of expectation I have as being part of my family. There's some standards you're gonna have. I mean, you're welcome to come in for free. I will take all of your baggage, all of your junk in the trunk, whatever it is, you can come to me. But once you're in my family, now I've got some standards for you. But here's what is so sweet about Jesus. He doesn't just tell you the standards and says, good luck. He actually gives you the power to live that way. He actually, by his grace, saves you and he makes you holy all by his power. It's not even by your own doing. That is what is so wonderful about this God that we served. And we talk all the time about the ABCs, right? You've heard it. A, admit. You've got to admit. Some of you in here, you have never admitted that what you're doing is not right. I mean, sure, there are some sins you're doing, but, you know, generally I'm pretty good. But you need to admit what you're doing is not right, what you're thinking is not right. And you need to believe that Jesus is the only one who actually can save you, can actually change your mind, can change the way you think. And then see, you have to choose. You have to make a decision. I don't care what your parents were, if grandparents were, if there were some pastors in your lineage way in the back, does not matter. Because at some point, you have to make a decision and say, I am going to admit this. I am going to, by faith, believe in Jesus. And I am going to make a decision to follow you. See, because what you've been doing and what you've been thinking isn't right. So I'd like to pray for us. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? If you're here at one of our campuses and you recognize today that what you're doing and what you've been believing isn't good, you don't have a meaningful relationship with Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity today. And you can just say this prayer kind of in the quietness of your heart. There's nothing magical about the words, but kind of just say something like this comes from your heart by faith. Say, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I've been trying to do this life all alone. I'm lost and I need you. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins you accept me as I am, but you want me to live differently. And I believe that you died for me. Would you save me today? Save me from hell. Save me from sin. Save me from myself. And today, I choose to put my faith in you. I choose to believe in you and you alone for my salvation. And Lord, for many in here that might have prayed that prayer, would you confirm in their own spirit that you have saved them? And for the rest of us, would you... Help us take a risk this week and maybe talk to a friend and let the facade down or join a small group and begin to change how we live and trust in you evermore. We love you very much, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.